Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hey, everyone. Thanks entirely to listeners like you who have decided to generously support the show on Patreon. Indoctrination has been going for over five years now, releasing a new episode every week, plus new bonus episodes for our Patreon supporters twice a month. In those almost six years, a supportive community of like-minded shows has grown around us. We are so grateful to see the numerous other podcasters doing really great work in the cult education and recovery space. And whenever we take notice of these shows, I like to reach out and collaborate, which, as some of you know, has led to some crossover episodes with shows like The Influence Continuum with Steve Hassan, A Little Bit Culty with Sarah and Nippy, as well as one we'd like to highlight today. I was a teenage fundamentalist with Brian and Troy. If you have not already done so, please make sure to check out their interview with me as well as their episode on indoctrination. Brian and Troy have developed a great community of people deconstructing their experiences in high-control religious groups, but I'll let them describe the show in their own words. G'day, I'm Troy. And I'm Brian. And we're the hosts of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, an ex-evangelical podcast. We used to be loyal members and leaders in Australian Christian megachurches, but we're not anymore. I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist is an honest and hilarious peek behind the curtain at the weird, the worrying, and sometimes traumatic world of evangelicals and Pentecostals. We share our stories, we interview prominent guests in the global ex-evangelical space, and provide a platform for others to tell their stories about their time in evangelicalism and their journey out. Shortlisted at the recent Australian Podcast Awards, I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist gives you a unique global perspective into one of the fastest growing religions in the world from the people who actually lived it. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and IWasAteenageFundamentalist.com. So thanks again to Brian and Troy for the work they do. And for today, we have Guinevere Turner. She is a writer, director, and actor who has been working in film and TV since her 1994 debut film, Go Fish, which she wrote, produced, and starred in. She teamed up with director Mary Heron to write the films American Psycho, The Notorious Betty Page, and the 2019 film Charlie Says. She can be seen in film roles that include The Watermelon Woman, Chasing Amy, American Psycho, and The L Word. Guinevere has taught screenwriting at Sarah Lawrence College at Columbia University, the University of Georgia, UCLA, and NYU. Her recently released immersive and spellbinding memoir, When the World Didn't End, tells the story of her childhood growing up with the infamous Lyman family cult and the complicated and unexpected pain of leaving the only home she'd ever known. The book is available everywhere now, and you can find more info at www.guinevereturner.com. Here she is now. Hi, 
am so happy to have Guinevere Turner with me today, who is an author and an actor, among many other things. And you're going to be talking today about your childhood experiences, but also after what happens after and how you heal from it. And also what's interesting about your childhood that you want people to know about. So if you don't mind taking a moment to introduce yourself, and then we'll start talking about your story. Thank you for having me on the show. I am Guinevere, and I am in my regular life profession, a screenwriter and an actor. But I took a moment, and by a moment, I mean three years, to write a book that just came out on uh, May 23rd called When the World Didn't End. And it is about my childhood in a cult called the Lyman family, which I was born into, and about the ways in which I left when I was 11 and the adjustment period to normal life because it was a very isolated, um, insular group. Uh, adjusting to normal life and, you know, what happened when I went out into the real world that I was raised to believe was evil. Right. So adjusting to normal life, as normal as life is, but adjusting to mainstream is a very difficult thing to do at any age, but especially going into your teen years when you're supposed to have it all together and you're supposed to be socially aware and you have no basis for that and no frame of reference. And I'm sure not exposure to sort of mainstream anything, media and cultural references of any sort. So it's very hard because you can't really act cool. And you're also still coming from a place of being overwhelmed. I talked to many people. I mean, I've talked to probably thousands of people over the years who have all talked about not thinking that they had a future at all because, you know, the world was ending or that they didn't have a future here on this planet. They were going to be going somewhere else, wherever that somewhere else was. And I know within your group, it was Venus. But, you know, there are a lot of people who will say, I don't really know how to plan for the future because I didn't know what the future would be like, but it certainly wasn't going to be among all of you that now I'm living with. And then you don't really learn a lot of worldly skills because, why would you need them if you're going to another planet? So I'm sure the adjustment was extremely hard. And so I know I want to be able to get into that sort of as part of the chronology. So to first start with Mel Lyman, if you can tell us a little bit about this interesting personality, people who knew him as a musician or who knew him as a cult leader, you know, all across the board. Mm, what do you know about him? Well, it's interesting what I know about Mel Lyman because, again, I was born into it and raised with it. So I still don't really have an adult perspective on who he was. We, you know, studied his writings. He wrote two books, one called Mirror at the End of the Road, which I quote a bit in my book, and one called The Autobiography of a World Savior, which tells you a lot about, you know, the overview of uh, how he saw himself, at least, and how we saw him. and. He was, you know, a musician, passionate about his music, passionate about music in general that he loved and loved movies too. I talk a lot about The Lord's List, which is a list of movies we had to watch growing up, uh, which were lucky for us, really great movies. I honestly, I don't know how it went from a band to a group of people living together to uh, what it was, which... By the way, they would never call themselves the commune. They just called themselves the communities. They would certainly, and I very, I would be surprised if anyone who other people consider a cult calls himself a cult, but they had a free 
I think, monthly newspaper that they passed out on the street corners in Boston called The Avatar, or just Avatar. And it was mostly full of his musings, teachings, writings, uh, photographs of him. And that I've, you know, I looked at them as a kid sort of just with panic, the way, same way I did with his writing. Like, I don't understand this. Thinking that, you know, I will someday when I grow up, it'll make sense. You know, I'm not, you know, there yet. And then I, you know, in writing this book, I really read a lot, a lot, a lot of, you know, his writings over again. And I'm like, it's still, it goes in circles and eludes like a concrete uh, answer in the exact same way. So I, I, to me as an adult, I would describe his beliefs as, striving for higher consciousness, for being, you know, very aware, like being unselfish, all these kind of things that when you're a kid are, they're abstract, but they're also so important to strive to be all of these things. So we all grew up kind of not really understanding exactly what it was supposed, was we were supposed to be doing, but um, definitely knowing when we were being punished if we weren't doing it right. Uh huh. Right. Okay. So let's talk about that. Because when you're raised in an environment that I don't have to tell you about what it feels like, you know how it feels like. I can just describe it from what people have described to me. There is this idea of, I think, not ever being able to fully relax, that the earth is shifting under you quite a bit because the rules change or the meaning of things change or the expectations change or the fact that you're going to get punished for something that you're not quite clear about. It can create in a lot of people the sort of hypervigilance. I have to be aware. I have to be aware of what's happening. I have to be aware of how I'm being received. But it's also hard when things just don't make sense, period. There are so many cultic groups and there's so many just, I think, you know, people who are controllers and manipulators who will offer you something that doesn't have any logical basis. And it will be said with so much sincerity and seriousness that you're sure it's important, but when you look at it, it doesn't come together. But the idea is that it's because you are not open to it enough and you haven't tried enough and you're not spiritual enough or enlightened enough or whatever enough. And it can't be that it just is word salad, but it is. Most of the time it is. But there are there are groups where you take whole courses and pay lots of money to decipher. I mean, people have this also in QAnon with these sort of QAnon texts that just didn't quite make sense. And people spent thousands of hours trying to decipher like they were the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, but they just didn't make sense. And so I'm wondering just physiologically for you, just being in that environment, were you feeling stress because you just didn't feel like you were getting it or you didn't know what you were going to get punished for? Or were there moments where you actually were feeling kind of relaxed and fine? I know this is many years, so it was probably a little bit of both. It's hard to really articulate this, but I'll get it one day. It was stressful. But there are some things about it that don't count as the kind of stress that other people might experience as kids because A, everyone around me is going through the same thing. It's not like a kid who goes to school and sees happy parents and then goes home to their terrible parents. You know what I mean? My reality was, well, I was surrounded by people whose reality was too. B, I didn't know any different. So to me, that was just life. And to me, the stress of you know wanting to get it right, wanting to evolve, wanting to you know be worthy of going to Venus, that wasn't stress. That was growth. You know what I mean? That was like meaningful thought process. 
it's very interesting to me to think about that there is something about the isolation that almost protects you from the levels of stress that we would think it is because it's so normal that who knows? I mean, maybe I'm really messed up and I'm definitely easily startled, which is, I know, a sign of uh, hypervigilance, but I didn't experience my childhood as unhappy. I had unhappy moments, but I didn't think, you know, oh, my life is so weird. Oh, my life is so hard. I thought, oh, when am I going to learn this? When am I going to understand this? Why am I such a failure? But I didn't experience that as hard. I experienced it as I'm young. Like eventually I'll learn. Eventually I'll be like the grownups. So part of the reason why I chose to write my book from the perspective of myself as a kid, because I just wanted to kind of try to put out there what it feels like to be in an environment, to be born into an environment like this, and that it doesn't feel as horrible as it sounds. And is which is not to say that I'm a quote unquote cult apologist by any stretch. There's something sort of like a, a, a sensational assumption. And of course, sensational things happened. You know, older men had 12-year-old girls as their wives, but it didn't feel like that. <laughs> and so it, it, does that mean that I just have deep trauma that I haven't even processed yet? Or does it mean that I'm less traumatized than one would assume because it was I didn't know it was bad until I was way out of it? It's a really interesting question. Right. So if you don't have a frame of reference, then you don't know how to evaluate what you're in as being healthy versus unhealthy, abusive versus healthy. It could be that it's a little bit of both. There are things that did not traumatize you as much because there was a normalization of them and it was just how the day was. And then probably when you came out of it, you were spending more time in the real world and you had a sense of how to define things like, oh, there's this thing called abuse. And what does that look like? And maybe that's something that people dealt with in the group, or maybe that's why I have a startle response. Like it might explain some physiological traits of yours. But yeah, if you you don't have the language and if it's just seen or talked about in other ways, then you sometimes don't know what happened to you or what happened to the people around you. And what happened to me in particular in the the transition is, first of all, I can hardly call myself a cult survivor, considering that I begged to stay. You know, my mother left and then they sent me to go to where she was and I didn't want to go. I didn't know my mother. We grew up in separate compounds and I, this was my whole life. And I was raised to believe that the outside world was evil. So of course I didn't want to go there. Plus I was also raised to believe that anyone who left, they were just nothing. They were just traitors. They were just dead to us. And so I also was like, and I have to go out into the world that you've taught me is a scary place full of scary people with my traitor mother who I barely know. So I begged to stay. They they didn't obviously let me stay. So I walked out into the world resisting absorbing anything except the bare minimum to not stand out like the complete weirdo that I realized I was pretty quickly once I especially once I got into you know regular people's school thinking that I was going I was protecting myself from being influenced by the world I was going to get back by 16 and that they became glorified to me. They were just, you know, the ultimate sort of heaven that I needed to get back to. And the rest of my life out in the world was a trial. So it took me a really long time to really look at how I grew up and see how 
it was harmful and it was abusive and and that I was I could even think of myself as a traumatized person. Also because what I did know was the household that I lived in when we left was harmful and was abusive. And we even that had a weird sheen to it because I hated those people anyway because they were traitors. So it's not the same as if someone's let your family that's supposed to take care of you is abusing you. It's just like, of course, this is happening. There are monsters. So all of my stuff is, has all these complicated layers of, uh, it took me a long time. I, I stopped talking about how I grew up pretty quickly. By eighth grade, I was like, erase. <laughs> this is too much for anyone. Um, let me just keep this to myself. I'm too weird. I got to college, I mean, to high school, and I never talked about it at all. Never called it a cult. Never thought of it as a cult. And then I got to college, all of a sudden, at least at Sarah Lawrence College, where I was in 1986, the weirder your backstory, the better. And I definitely won. (laughs) And it was so funny to me that I had kind of created this identity around not being from where I was from, around vagueness, around, you know, where I lived before and pretending that I lived with just a regular family or, you know, my mom and her boyfriend. I even called him my stepfather, even though she wasn't married to him, just for normalcy, normalcy. And like, so people would move on and not ask me anymore. And then I get to college and people are just like, oh, my parents got divorced. Or, oh, my therapist is an asshole. And these kids were so much more kind of cosmopolitan and grown up than me. that I was like, wow, like you have a therapist, you know, we're 18. And then, I don't know, I told someone and everyone was like, what? And then my best friend would be like, tell them about the Moonies, tell them about the Moonies. Because he would just love to see people's faces when I, when I, when I, and then I was like, wow, I can't believe I just went from hiding, like crafting a really, really well-crafted personality around this not being true and then finding that it's like it's my it's my it's the coolest thing about me but still I did not call it a cult I called it a commune even though they didn't call it a commune they called it the communities but I understood that's what people could wrap their heads around and I would never use the word cult and then it wasn't until I was 22 and I was talking to a therapist not about my childhood just I was just telling her about my childhood as a way of just being like this is me and she was like that was not a commune. That was a cult. And I was like, rude. I was like, how dare she? Because the word cult to me was Jim Jones. Right. It was pejorative. Yeah. And not us. You know what I mean? We were, or we weren't the Manston family, you know? And so she handed me a newsletter from the Cult Awareness Network and I took it home and I was reading it and I was like, these people are so anti-cult. They don't know what they're talking about. It was, I was still, I was really kind of protective and defensive about the word, about how it applied to me and the people that I grew up with. And then, I mean, probably took me like six months maybe before I started to kind of let that sink in and process. I mean, that's a hallmark of people who grow up in in abusive or or stressful environments, right? The processing is pretty slow, (laughs) you know, but it did finally sink in. And then I was like, oh, wow. Well, if all of these things that are listed as what makes a cult are then I mean check 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 all of the all of the you know cult 101 uh, factors were there that was me going through college and reading and talking to people and we didn't I bet it would have been different if we had the internet that journey was interesting because I was so resistant to thinking anything bad about them ever it's interesting I I started doing this work before the internet 
even before cell phones. And I remember a lot of people calling me from payphones on a highway that they had just escaped from somewhere. And there was usually the sound of trucks going by because they had to find some sort of call box or payphone to call from that has since passed, Um, even though it does still happen every once in a while. And people, yes, would have had a lot more access to information, although cults usually bar people from checking the internet for any negative information um, or talking to people who have left. So, you know, the people who are in cultic groups actually have access to the least amount of accurate information about it than public, which is always ironic. I think people don't realize. But I think it's interesting because even with the support groups that I do and people talking that, you know, we don't have to call it a cult. You don't have to use the C word. It's really what you decide that it is. And also if you're feeling ready to call it that. And I think it's important that someone else doesn't label something for you, that you define it. I think that's actually a very important thing coming out of a group like this, where you get to say what something is based on the facts, based on your feelings, based on your memories, not someone else's definition. It's interesting you should mention about them you know, that you weren't uh, these other groups and, you know, like the Mansons. And I know this is a big week for Leslie Van Houten with getting paroled. I actually remember writing a letter on her behalf a couple of times because it just was enough already. And just it, it just showed not understanding um, being victimized and being taken over. And, you know, I wish people who really did do things on their own of their own volition were punished in the same way that she was punished for being a victim and perpetrator, but a victim who was a perpetrator. I wrote a film called Charlie Says that is about Leslie, Pat and Susan that takes place mostly them in prison. Uh, their first their first several years in prison. Uh, while flashing back to sort of how they got indoctrinated. So it's a subject that is very close to my heart. Um, And the movie, uh, Charlie says, I really, really tried to humanize them, for one, to show, like, people just stopped caring about them once they were in prison. But what happened to them in prison is fascinating. And also really try to, like, show a lay person how, like, one of the ways that I was trying to humanize them is how indoctrination works and how, you know, you know, what love bombing looks like and what the baby steps are and what, you know, the point of no return looks like, et cetera. So anyway, I'm really happy about Leslie Van Houten. Yeah. Uh, it's quite a relief and it's a weird uh, kind of in-between space of not justifying what happened, but understanding it understanding who the real perpetrator is. There there are a lot of people who will say to me that they feel very guilty about the things that they did while they were under someone's control. And the way I like to describe it is that if you feel that you've hurt someone, like you smashed into them and knocked them over, if the, if it's something you purposely chose to do just on your own, yeah, you take full responsibility. But if like your controller was the one who was holding onto your shoulders and pushing you forward into somebody else and you knock them over, how much is your responsibility? How much is your fault? You're in the middle. So it's an interesting place a lot of people find themselves in, but they're the ones who are, were victimized and then became a perpetrator, but while being victimized and controlled are often the ones with the conscience, the ones who have guilt, the one who does it to them, the one who pushes them into someone else doesn't walk around feeling bad at all about what they've done. It's interesting. I find controllers operate in different tenses than victims. Same thing with narcissistic personalities. They're in the present and the future but they don't look back at what they've done and they leave people in their wake who remember what they've done. So in any event, I'm curious if you can just 
describe kind of a day in the life. What was it like for you on a typical day while you were with the Lyman family? Just if we can kind of get a bird's eye view, what life was like for you? Well, it varied a bit depending on which compound I was on. There was one in Martha's Vineyard, one in Boston, one in Kansas, one in Los Angeles, one in San Francisco and New York when I was younger. Mostly the kids were Kansas, Martha's Vineyard, LA. And I spent a lot of time in the farm in Kansas, which meant waking up, crack of dawn, breakfast for 35 kids, which is like, you know, a huge pot of oatmeal, clangity clang, like eat fast if you want seconds kind of situation. I I had to train myself out of eating fast when I was a teenager because I realized I'm like, there's no competition. There's more food if you want it. You don't have to like shovel it down like you're in an orphanage. And then working fields, you know, harvesting crops or doing whatever it was that the crops needed, which is often weeding them, thinning them or harvesting um, all kinds of chores that had to do with animals. So then when you have that many people, there's always laundry. Like there's just never not laundry at some phase, uh, a lot of clothes lines. And then we often, uh, our heat source was wood stoves. So lots of chopping wood. And then somewhere in the afternoon, usually would be go out and play till dinner. Uh, if we're in the vineyard, that meant going to the beach. If we were in LA, that meant more like playing in the house or, you know, and then on the farm, it was just, you know, wandering around barefoot, like feral children through fields and clay flats and creeks and, you know, all of that stuff. Girls get called in before boys because girls have to help put dinner on the table. And then, you know, dinner and after dinner almost always would be either a tape, which were essentially like a mixed tape that Mel Lyman made. He would make them, I don't know, maybe twice a year. And, you know, they would come with liner notes. And when he first would release one, um, you'd listen to it and and write him a letter about what you thought. But listening to it meant like everybody's sitting in a room, complete silence, no falling asleep, really sitting there and listening to, um, you know, probably like an hour or so of music. And then either that or a Lord's List movie or everybody played instruments and um, often sitting around playing music and singing. It sounds like I just described like a busy life, but a, a really, I don't know, music and art at the end of the day. Like it, I know it's, it, sounds, it sounds quite nice. And the thing is, it was in many ways. I mean, the culture of the kids in particular, how much time we spent, how much unsupervised time we spent and how our life was when we were left to our own devices. I remember beautifully and wistfully, even though, you know, there's a dark side to it. Like one bad thing happens and it's that, that like, if somebody doesn't own up to this, everybody's going to get in trouble. You know, that kind of like the, the turning us against each other and or encouraging an every man for himself vibe uh, sometimes. So, you know, there's like those kinds of stressful edges, which maybe all families have. This is just a really big family. Right. So, you know, when I hear about people's childhoods or days, and it seems, you know, idyllic, bucolic, and it is just really nice camp-like, community-like, kibbutz-like, it's very interesting because I guess my ear is trained to the things that stand out, like when you said no falling asleep. So that, to me, is like this ding, 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 ding. Because if it really is this relaxed, unsupervised, lovely thing, people can fall asleep when they want. 
and people don't have to rush through meals. Like you can have your time. There isn't this worry about scarcity. There isn't a worry also about about falling asleep as disrespect, which happens a lot. In a lot of these groups, if a leader has the ego need to have every word of his be of utmost importance or every musical note or anything that he thinks is important should be of equal importance to you, you cannot fall asleep. And even young kids are held up to that standard and often punished if they can't keep up with it, which just shows that there isn't an understanding about child development. And also, if you've spent the day working in the fields and then running around playing, you're going to be sitting in, you know, maybe for the first time and you're going to want to fall asleep. What would happen then? What were the punishments if if you were caught doing something you weren't supposed to do or that ultimately affected his ego? I mean, in the case of falling asleep, I mean, honestly, we just didn't. <laughs> and I and I remember struggling because you're right, you know, in some of those those places, our days were very physically active and we were just tired kids. In the case of that, it would be something like, well, first of all, probably a smack to smack you awake, but a, a big talk afterwards about why, you know, why you, why would you do that? And, you know, where was your heart? Where was your soul? And, you know, obviously you didn't care and, you know, you didn't, you weren't committed to, you know, the love that, that Melvin was honoring us all with his music. And then within that, if you were sort of in trouble and other kids knew it, there was like a various layers of shunning where if like, if I'm the fool, unloving, ungrateful fool who fell asleep, then I'm sort of disgraced for an unknowable period of time. And so other kids are, you know, just tread lightly around me because I'm sort of tarnished until I'm not. And that is could be as quickly as two hours or like two weeks. You just don't know. Right. Oh, okay. And then to go to talking about the idea of family, because so many groups like this are called families. I mean, there's a particular cultic group just called the family. There are actually a lot called the family or changed to the family or the something family. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's a dangerous group if it's called that, but it's something to look into to see why it's called that. And if that's to lower people's defenses, because if this is family, you need to be able to trust family and love family. And I think also there is an assumption of what that means, but it doesn't mean that you're with your biological family. And in fact, those alliances usually threaten the leader the most. And so people are really extracted from having those ties. And that's very, very difficult and it's hard, I'm sure, thinking about you leaving at 11 and needing to connect with the world, but also connect with your mother and to really define that relationship while you're trying to figure out where you are in the world. I can only imagine. So what did it mean that you were family? Is it that you weren't supposed to get mad at each other? You were supposed to accept each other and, and uh, all be seen that all the adults were your parents? I mean, how did it play out in your group? It's funny because as you're talking, I'm like, did we ever call ourselves the Lyman family or is that what other people called us? But definitely the if the word family wasn't used in that official capital F way, it was we were definitely a family. For us kids, you can make a diagram. Well, I tried to make this diagram. It's actually really hard. It's not a family tree and it's not a line, but it would be like 
your mom is my dad and that person's dad is that person's dad, but that has that mom. And we were literally, with the exception of about two of us, you could make a line in which everybody is connected. And that way we were family. I mean, in, the, in a biological sense, because as it, our generation, we're, we were all kind of one step removed related. And my, and some, like, for example, they were, my mom's sister was also in the Lyman family and she had kids. A few other um, sibling pairs, sisters were in the family and they had kids. So a lot of people were actually physically cousins. And so, you know, it's a, it's a Byzantine little family tree, but actual blood was, was very present, but also actual, you know, biological parent-child relationships were very devalued um, with a few exceptions. And many of us were were usually not in the same place as either of our parents. In my case, my dad wasn't a part of the family. So, and I was, I was never in the, lived in the same place as my mother uh, past the age of three. And that's, you know, it was just sort of cult 101 kind of de-individualizing, I guess is really what that's about. Right. And being, and, but I did was raised with, we were all raised with, there were certain women who were in each community were the main caretakers of kids. So there were maternal figures. I'm not saying they were wonderful people necessarily. They also punished us, but there were these kind of the women who lived in the kid's house and the women who were there for the the nitty gritty day to day of getting us all in the bath and getting us all to bed and, you know, whatever that looked like. So it wasn't just no one. It's like, you know, two women are everybody's mom. And so then also talking about the relationships and the relationships between the adults and the children and also what children are exposed to. You know, you talk about being exposed to having parents or the adults doing very adult things, not far from children or right around children or sometimes with children. And that's also not uncommon. It doesn't decrease the impact that that can have. And the shift in, I think, a feeling about privacy or body autonomy, you know, these are things you have to develop over time when it wasn't part of your life. And so I'm just wondering about you kind of your relationship to that, to just to your own sense of self and how much privacy you could have, how much control you felt like you could have over you. It's so interesting because, you know, a lot, of people might wonder how at 55 years old, I can even talk about what it felt like to be seven, eight, nine, 10, 11. A big part of it is diaries that I kept from that time. And also that I really, really like clung to these memories with a ferocity after I left. So my memory is really clear on a lot of that stuff. But when I think about how I felt about autonomy, autonomy was selfishness. Wanting time for yourself, wanting to be alone was being self-involved, was being on your own trip. That was a big uh, turn of phrase that I grew up with. You're on your own trip. And so it moved quickly into self-hatred slash self-discipline slash, you know, what is wrong with me? How can I be a better person? And, you know, but also we're, you know, sleeping, you know, 5,000 of us in one big bed or, you know, taking baths with like four kids. Like in general, just the the nature of the, the money that they had and the time period and the fact that these are all people in their 20s who are raising us in the, in the early 70s, there was very little boundaries. We didn't even have our own clothes. It was just everybody's clothes of that size. We didn't have our own birthdays. It was everybody's birthday of that sign, astrological sign. So there was a general feeling of you know, intense collectivity, which didn't feel bad. 
which is ironic or interesting now because as an adult, I really, I don't cohabitate well. I really need a lot of alone time to feel kind of just okay and sane. I love dinner parties. I love artist residencies that I've been in where it's dinner with like 30 or 40 people every single night. I love that. And I can feel that that's because that's how I grew up. But it's almost like that lack of boundaries that I had as a kid, this this like intense collective feeling left me feeling like everything else is an invasion. <laughs> everything else is just outsiders infringing on on me. Whereas growing up that way, that was we were all the same person in a way, or we were sort of it felt like in that way, siblings, but more than sibling. I don't know. It's like if kids went to war and how how people go to war and bond. Or, you know, like if you were born into your summer camp. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's very unifying. And you also have had this shared experience that no one else understands and can relate to and can understand on a sensory level, too. I mean, very deeply. And so I'm wondering before we move on to coming out and healing and, you know, more of the adult part of the story, are there other moments in time that you think really highlight your experiences there um, that really paint a picture for the listener about what life was like? The one that springs to mind that kind of shows a bunch of different things is that because we worked in fields and had to get a uh, very early to work before noon when it got too hot, we would wear a lot of layers and then sort of take them off. And the adults would get mad at us because, uh, you know, there'd be clothes strewn all over these fields. And these were huge fields. And so they made a thing called the Saturday box where somebody would collect all the clothes that were left behind in the fields, put them in a box. And on Saturdays uh, after breakfast, I guess, we would all gather in the kitchen. Uh, they had a paddle a wood paddle that was like hand carved and and had like a painting of a woman with a sword butt on one side and a man with a sword butt on the other side. And they would pick up a piece of clothing and say, whose is this? And if it was yours, you came to the front of the room to get paddled. Now that sounds pretty grim, right? And it was, it could be scary, but it was also like, again, it was happening to all of us. And me and some of the girls I grew up with had, you know, decided that we were going to, you know, wear 12 pairs of panties on Saturdays, which we thought was hilarious. And it, it wasn't that humiliating because it was happening to everyone. And also because it got so boring if no one would claim the piece of clothing that sometimes one of us, especially those of us who are wearing 12 underwear, would claim it just to get it over with because <laughs> we wanted to go outside. But, you know, it's corporal punishment for something that a, a kids will be kids and also wear a child labor force. But the memory to me is is more funny than it is, uh, you know, traumatic. I mean, but I feel like that's a kind of a good example of a, like, it's, there's an edge there that's not okay. But to us, it was kind of like, how are we going to, how are we going to deal with the Saturday box this week? You know? You know, it's interesting you talk about it in this way because there are so many people I talk to who grew up in different groups and who found their way around things or to deal with things very similar to this. And of course, when you step back, you think this shouldn't have been happening at all, that if they didn't want you to have your clothing all over, they could have had an adult collecting the clothing that kids were taking up. Like there was a way to problem solve this, right? 
But no, they were just going to kind of trap. I think a lot of people are set up for traps where things are not problem solved and things are not prevented. A mistake is constantly being made so that there can be some sort of punishment for it to have people adhere to rules or to have the adults see that, you know, there is this rule that, you know, people need to follow by. There's a system here in place. The part of it being uh, socially done is, I think, to add to the public shaming, which also shouldn't be done. So there's so much wrong with it. And also you were up before the dawn to work these fields, which is also, yeah, child labor. You know, to get punished for taking off clothing because you got hot while you were doing something you probably shouldn't have been allowed to be doing to that degree, none of it is right. And there is then, on top of that, there is this survival technique that kids, I find, and adults too, but I hear it a lot with kids that they find a way to deal with it and they find a way to kind of get out of something being as painful or to get something over with. I talked to a lot of people raised in fundamentalist groups where they were told they had to uh, speak in tongues and they didn't know how to do that. And they knew that they couldn't leave that room or they were going to get punished if they didn't have the Holy Spirit in them, whatever else. And they just made stuff up and they just made up sounds and they were all doing it. And they all knew they were doing it because they were hungry and they wanted to go to lunch or they had to go to sleep or whatever it was. So wearing so many, you know, pairs of underwear... (laughs) is just this great survival adaptation that you know people come up with when they need to figure something out and get back to the life that they want to be having but yeah none of it should have been happening period yeah but that's a perfect example of a story that if it hurts me somewhere it's certainly not in a way that i feel right right yeah you know i didn't experience it as terrifying at the time i experienced it as normal and and as a challenge But I should also say that, you know, of the people that I grew up with, I know what's going on with most of them. And some people are doing really well and some people are not doing well at all. So I also know that by whatever miracle that I'm doing pretty well, considering that the the ways that I grew up and, but but I've also... You know, so I was gone when I was 11, but a lot of the people that stayed as I've gotten to know them uh, as I'm older, a lot of the, you know, the kids I grew up with, they all say that things got so much worse once we all became teenagers. And when I left, there were probably like four or five people older than me, and they were just very young teenagers. But once an entire surge of of us became teenagers, I, I, just, I think it just, you know, it got horrible. I know that it got horrible. It got much more violent and much more conflict-based and uh, scarier for everyone. And why do you think that was? What made the changes happen? I imagine that it was simply, as I believe so many utopian ideals do, it's like they hadn't kind of thought ahead enough to realize like these people will grow up and they're not necessarily going to want to live like this. Just for starters, you can't expect us to date our sisters and brothers. There are very few romances between any of my generation. There are a couple, but not many. Um, you know, that we this is a this is our family. So like how do we have romance and God forbid sex? And so and and the curiosity about the outside world that I think came out once people got a little older. And then just 
you know, a teenager, like it's an essential part of being a teenager, right? That you are like, I am not you to your parents. This is how I'm not. This is how I established my identity by, by being not you, but there wasn't room for that. And so I think that's where, that's where a lot of the conflict came. And, and I think they all were just also getting older, working through whatever. I mean, it must be crazy to live like that and in this insular environment, even for adults. So I think they were just conflicts were bubbling over, resentments were bubbling over. Everyone wasn't in their twenties anymore. And at some point, I don't know because I wasn't there, but it's they were pretending that the leader was alive for quite a while after he was not. And at some point, I think that they must have had to reveal that to everyone and it must have caused a big wave of, of a number of things. And not the least of which is a group of people realizing they've been lied to. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, that also happens quite often with the, the leader being assumed to still be around and still be in charge. And still be feared and still be listened to when they're no longer. And that sometimes happens when there hasn't been a plan in place for the next person in charge. Or the next person in charge is worried that on their own, they're not going to be able to hold this together in the same way. There are a lot of reasons. So I'm wondering about that. And I'm wondering about him dying and people just not wanting to say that he was dead. What do you understand of that from knowing the community? My child's perspective was unique because just a few adults knew and a few of his 13 kids knew. One of those kids was my best friend and she told me. So I grew up knowing that he was dead, but looking around me and seeing that most adults did thought he was still alive and were talking about him like he was still alive. So. Whatever I thought about the why of that was deeply overshadowed by the panic of being afraid that somehow I was going to be in trouble for the lie because I knew something I wasn't supposed to know. And and the kind of deeply unsettling experience uh, as a kid of seeing adults not know something that you know, like it just made a topsy-turvy world because it kind of like shook my foundation about like the power of adults that I had before that. I think also having a group that's apocalyptic, but also is looking towards what's going to happen in the future. And and if you deserve to get there and you'll get there and you'll live on Venus, there is a real loss about that not happening, about not being able to work towards getting there anymore and not being able to have that life. And I don't know, I mean, that would be typical, but I don't know if you were also impacted by that when you left or maybe even uh, went into adulthood if you were kind of picturing yourself in your future and how it was going to look so different and then here you were very much on earth and not living that life that fantasy i don't know if that impacted you what impacted me was that we were all told that the earth was school we were all here to learn something and that if we didn't learn that thing we would come back again for another life. And so that's what we were all raised to believe. I was told for as long as I can remember that I had been on the earth too many times, that I had something to learn that I just had not learned. And that, you know, I was also called the little 44 year old. And so I was plagued by this because every day I would wake up thinking, what is it? What am I supposed to learn? How have I failed? How old am I? (laughs) 
And so when the world didn't end, which is the title of my book, what Mel Lyman sort of said to the people, not literally, but what came down to the people was that certain of us, our souls weren't ready. And that's why we didn't go because, and but he was ready, but then we all had still had work to do. And I was pretty sure that it was just me, that it was my thing that I had not learned my lesson, that I was the one who dragged everyone down and that I was the reason that we didn't go to Minas. So my overall vibe was not so much the sadness about not going. It was the the panic that it was my fault. So, you know, I was just really focused on becoming Venus worthy. <laughs> becoming Venus worthy. <laughs> the name of your next book. Yeah. I can only imagine on your actual 44th birthday, <laughs> I'm just going, oh, this is actually what it feels like. Yeah. And I'm still trying to be an adult. (laughs) Right? Aren't we all? (laughs) So here you are, and I know we're coming close to the time that we need to finish up, and um, there's so much more to talk about. But I'm wondering about you telling your story, because so much of what happens in these groups is secretive. You're not supposed to share certain things. There are always lots of reasons given that people wouldn't understand or they would try to take it away or et cetera, et cetera. So I think just pushing through that fourth wall of just speaking it, just writing it is sometimes hard and you can still feel at times, I'm guessing, but let me know if it's true for you that you're betraying something or someone or that you're feeling a sense of responsibility towards the group, which can often still happen. Just if you're a good person, if you care. At the same time, there is a force inside people that says, you know what, I'm going to push through even that because there's an important story here and people need to know. So I'm wondering what it was like for you just to get started with talking about what happened. I first tried to write about it in college. I found that people were so fascinated in my writing workshop with the subject that I was getting no feedback on my actual writing. But I also, it was my first taste of the minute you start talking about this, people see you differently. And and that I wasn't sure, I, I, I was actually very sure that I didn't want that much. And also that I just felt like I was never going to become a better writer if this is where I started talking about this. And then, you know, I tried to write about it in my 20s and I tried to write about it in my 30s. But the idea of publishing anything was scary to me for all the reasons you just described. I didn't want to betray them. Unlike most people who used to be there and aren't anymore, I wasn't in trouble. They tearfully sent me away. They told me to come back when I was a teenager. I did go back and visit when I was 18. I was existing in a space of them being okay with me. And so, but then literally in 2019, when Charlie says, the movie that I was just telling you about, about the women who killed for Manson, you'll notice how I aggressively refused to call them the Manson girls. They are not girls and they are in their 60s and they are not his. Uh, I like to grind. Thanks for listening. (laughs) (laughs) It's important. It's an important distinction. Yes. I realized that I had, you know, honed my skills in not talking about my childhood, especially when talking about other films and, you know, talking to journalists. But that now talking about how I grew up was important because it's so informed how I wrote this film. I, you know, I, I absolutely understand it in a way that a lot of people wouldn't. And but then I was just sort of dreading endlessly talking to journalists about just about me when I would be with the director and then the actors. And you know what I mean? Like, it's not just about me. Uh, and so the director actually said to me, you should really try to write something and, you know, publish it ahead of, you know, when we're starting to do all of our press. 
And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I started to try to write the piece that eventually ended up in The New Yorker. And I was terrified, but like physically terrified. Like intellectually, I'm like, I, like, who cares? They're not going to come for me in the night and have me killed. That's not their thing. They're not, I don't, I knew that they were paying attention to me because, you know, it's a, it's a pretty small family. Like I'm sure that I was just on their radar in general. And because I'm friends with some of the people, some of my generation, I'm like, what is this? What is, like, I'm 50 years old and whatever they planted in me is strong. Like I was like sick to physically ill for like three weeks. Like I would have to like make myself not think about it and not think about the consequences of it. But I'm like, there are no consequences. There really, I highly doubt there will be any consequences except for a feeling, except that I know that they wouldn't want me to talk about them and that I would become persona non grata officially. But I did it because I was also kind of, I'm like, whoa, whoa, wow, that conditioning worked. That programming, it's not even conditioning because they got me from born, worked so well that no matter what, how much I can see this experience in my childhood in this way that's much more analytical and much more understanding it in a larger cultural context, I'm still afraid that I don't want to be in trouble. Basically, I don't want to be in trouble, like I'm nine years old again. And I pushed through that because I I wanted to, uh, for a lot of reasons, but not the least of which is I wanted to see if I could. And then I started to realize, wow, none of us, none of us have ever written about it or spoken about it publicly. Wow. That's a lot of people keeping a privacy. I'm putting that in air quotes. And when the piece was about to come out, there was a fact checker, you know, from the New Yorker who was calling, you know, he called people like from that, from, from the Lyman family, but fact checkers are, you know, a little bit scary to people because they don't you, don't, you don't read the piece. They just ask you questions. So like, anyway, someone, one of the women I grew up with called me like crying and begging me not to, not to publish this piece. And it was the first time. And I was like, what? Like, I, first of all, it's a New Yorker. Like, I, yeah, I'm a writer. Like, it's, I don't know what would have to happen because what's happening to me right now is terrifying for me to say no to that. Like, that's how much I really want my writing in The New Yorker. But it was the first time I articulated to her, I'm like, no matter how you all feel about our childhoods or how we feel about it, here's one thing you cannot take away from us. It is ours. It is our experience. It is our story to tell. No matter what sort of like emotional shreds you left us in and what sort of scars and hurdles we've had, like you cannot take this away from us. Like this, especially not me. I'm a writer. It's all I got. This is my this is my superpower. Don't tell me to shut it down. And then that really like fueled me forward to um just sort of that realization that it's mine. It doesn't belong to them. And that's, you know, if they think that they did something wrong that they want to hide, then they shouldn't have done it because the consequences are eventually we're all going to grow up and some of us are going to feel like talking about it. And I have a feeling that uh, I'm the first, but I won't be the last because I broke the seal. That made me feel like, okay, all this, all these years, all these decades, all these different approaches uh, and people have approached me to write a movie about it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I've always just said, no, no, no. But I was like, now I'm ready. And now is the time. 
Like now it's presented itself like because, and then I realized, oh, I think I tricked myself into this by starting on the Charlie Says Project. It's like, I sort of knew, even though I wouldn't tell myself that in the back of my head, it was all going to come down to my childhood and talking about my childhood. And then it was just going to be out. Um, Because if I didn't talk about my childhood in in the context of that film, it would have seemed like I had something to hide. It would have just been weird because it's not that hard to see that fact about me if you Google me, you know? So then there I was writing this book. And now, now, I mean, it's been out for a week, a little more than a week. And I'm hearing the the network, the communication network among everyone that I grew up with. And some are pissed. Some are like, heck yeah. Like, you know, like the, but the network is alive and well. I was talking to one uh, woman that I grew up with and I was telling her, something that had happened between me and another woman. And she goes, Oh yeah, I know. I know all of that. Everybody knows everything. We're in a text thread that just never stops right now. Everyone is reading your book. <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, here's my worst fear. Uh, she said the older generation. No, they're there. She's like, they're, well, first of all, Jesse died in February. So their powers sort of been decentralized once again. And you know, they're figuring out their life and they're all like people in their seventies. I'm the least of their worries or concerns. I think at this moment, she said, so none of them are reading it. And they probably never will, but everybody of our generation is reading it. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> that's, uh, here it is. Here's my worst fear is, uh, and especially even more than from the older generation. It's like, these, these are, these are my brothers and sisters, you know, and they more than the older generation, they will read it and they will either see truth or see lies. And that's, you know, I, I don't want them to think that I, I don't want them to think that I'm sort of selling us short or representing us incorrectly. Yes, I still care. I really, really care. So that part is really interesting after all these years. It's my family. It's where I come from, for better or for worse, which is just really, it's interesting and complicated. And on a daily basis, I'm aware of myself having a a panic attention that feels decades old. Mm -hmm. It's very conditioned response. It's really good, actually, I think, to have this, to have this exposure in this way. It's almost like desensitization therapy, where I think you'll get used to it being a topic and dissenting views and supporting views and just it being something that people talk about. But when it first happens, yeah, you can feel very exposed and break into a sweat and feel that somehow you're doing something wrong. I mean, I I know that it is true, just as you say, that it's hard to be the first voice, um, but then you're usually not the last. And people are often waiting for someone to say it first. And so you are opening the door, not just for people from this group, but from others who are are waiting to feel the bravery, I think, to take on doing something like this, knowing that they might be up against people being upset with them. But also, I'm sure the way that you portray things in the book is, you know, very much like the way you portray them as we're talking, which is very fair-minded, you know, that these are not bad people. And this is a situation, these are people I care about. We were all in this together. And at the same time, not but, and at the same time, these other things happened that are important for people to know about. Um, So I think if it's a both and presentation, it helps a lot just so you know that you're saying it in in a way that's respectful and factual simultaneously, you know, and there are also people who are going to not believe it, who are going to say that it's all lies and they're going to continue feeling that way. And others will say it's all lies because that's their conditioned response is that's how they're supposed to. 
in good conscience, I guess, respond. And eventually, uh, just as I've seen with people who are very sure, it becomes that maybe it's not a lie and maybe it is closer to the truth and maybe it's just hard for them to see it. They're not seeing it yet. So a lot of people who might be against what you wrote are just not open to seeing it yet. Yeah. And I know that intellectually, I hope that what I've written will empower slash encourage not only the people I grew up with to write if they feel inclined or to tell the story in whatever way they want, but for others too. But I also like to underline, especially because I'm in a community of survivors and much more recently than I, that if writing is is your impulse, do it. But don't rush to write a book. It took me 40 years to be ready. A woman once said to me when I was looking for an editor for this book, she said, you are smart to have had an entire career that doesn't have anything to do with this and then decide to write about it because now it doesn't define you. And while I can't take credit for that level of forward thinking and patience, because neither of those things are really my personality, I will say that it feels that way, that it feels, I feel very, very, I feel sort of safer in a way that I have this other identity that is all of the accomplishments I've had that have nothing to do with cults. I mean, do they have to do with cults a little and serial killers and all kinds of things, (laughs) you know, but, but they're, you know, they're not my story. Um, And so that's something that I just really want to encourage people who might feel inspired to write by reading my book. Just take your time, take your time. And and maybe definitely everyone's completely different from each other, but that it's the urge to tell the world should be way down on the list of reasons why you're doing it. Right. Okay. I like that a lot. So just as we're finishing up, Uh, Where can people find the book and find other things that you're doing and that you want people to know about? I'm most present on Instagram only because I've been trained to do do so by my younger sisters. (laughs) You know, the book is available from Penguin Random House, from their website, from Amazon, from Barnes & Noble, from so many independent booksellers. And I highly encourage people to go to your bookstore and support independent bookstores because I love them. Okay. It was wonderful to speak with you and to have you share so much of your heart, of your your memories. I mean, it, it's not easy necessarily to talk about and to remember to this degree. So I appreciate you going back there with me. And I really value that you are putting so much into writing. And I, I guess I think it's a great way of presenting things in a really fair way and just saying, this is what's true for me, you know, take it or leave it. Right. I just articulated to myself yesterday perfectly. I'm not saying this is what happened. I'm saying this is what I remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Wonderful to meet you. Wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. thing before you go. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Guinevere, for your time, for your insights, for sharing so much that was so deeply personal and powerful. You know, so many of these cultic groups 
are similar in so many ways and dissimilar in others, which I know is an obvious statement, except some of the ways that they're similar I find so interesting, including the fact that there are many of these groups that run businesses that people would not know are actually connected to the group and might be still supporting it. This particular group actually has a a company uh, not far from where I live in a suburb of Los Angeles. It's really important to do your research to see who you are supporting unwittingly at times. So one of the things that Guinevere mentioned was the fact that there were so many rules that would change from day to day, from moment to moment. That happens almost all the time. It almost feels like cult leaders are kind of experimenting or using people like guinea pigs throughout their experience there. And the rules seem so incredibly important because they are, because they are said by the leader who seems to need to be seen as and is sometimes seen as all-knowing and all-powerful. So you figure that there must be a reason for these rules, but even if you don't understand the reason, you do feel you have to follow them because if you don't, there's usually hell to pay. And sometimes within more religious groups, it really is that there is hell to pay according to those teachings. One of the things that happens, though, is that sometimes the rules don't make sense, but you still feel like you have to follow them anyway, and the rules change, and then you have to follow what is the new rule from one day to the next. Same thing with the writings, with the teachings themselves. Guinevere talked about how the writings did not make sense, and when I asked her about that, she said that she had this sense, one day when I'm older, I'll understand. That idea of one day when I am X, I'll understand, happens in almost every cultic group. One day when I'm older, one day when I'm more enlightened, one day when I am more positive, one day when I am in the spirit of yes, or whatever is called in a particular group, one day when God has chosen me to open my heart in this way, I will get it. And the truth is, When you have people who get involved in these groups, by and large, bright people, there is a reason that they don't understand the teachings. And it's not because they are not enough of something. And it's not because they're not ready. And it's not because they haven't achieved a certain level of ability, but it's because they really do not make sense. If you sit down and you read through, it could be just any website. I invite you to go almost on any website for someone who calls themselves a a religious leader or a healer or whatever it is, and see what they say about what they can provide and what the belief is. And as you read, chances are, if it's a non-mainstream group, meaning the leader can kind of say whatever they want, and they don't have to be quoting the Bible. They don't have to be quoting other philosophers or teachers or those in their field, but they can be crafting it from their own minds, similar to L. Ron Hubbard's writings. You will find that you'll get to the end of a sentence and you'll say, wait, what? And feel that you have to reread it because it must be that you just weren't paying attention. But really, it very often is that by the time you get to the end of the sentence, you haven't really read anything. You've read a lot of words, but they haven't meant anything. 
What you also have is that you have a lot of words that are amorphous. They, they're non-tangibles, so like the idea of, of finding enlightenment. So what does that mean, and what does that feel like, and what does that look like, and how do you know you've achieved it? But they're going to promise it to you, and you still won't know what that means for you in your life. It might sound great, might be what you think you're looking for, but it's not something that can be provable, that's measurable. And so it exists sort of in the ether of spiritual and psycho babble. What you also have, though, is that you have something that we've talked about on the podcast, which is that there is this assumption made that if someone is speaking in a way that you don't understand, it must be because they are of a higher level than you in one way or another, either intellectually or spiritually or psychologically. But it really could be that. And it also could be that they have such a polished way of putting these words together with so much sincerity in the way they say it or in the way they deliver it that they are used to then being able to get a whole group of people to nod their heads yes and look pleased and look somehow mm, like they're being gifted with this. And no one asks what it means. And no one says, I'm sorry, what was that? And I don't think that means something. Maybe you left out a word. Mm, This doesn't make sense. Because people learn in these environments not to say those things because they will stand out, because they'll be put on the hot seat, because they'll be accused of being stupid, of being closed-minded, or that's the devil, or that's them being uninspired or not ready for the message, whatever it is. So these are people who have the gift of gab a lot of the time. They have a way of delivering this information and having it seem like it comes together. That's not to say that there are some who run organizations who really are quite bright, that could happen. And it could happen that what they're saying makes sense, but that's a much smaller percentage than the ones who say, I can say anything, and I will, and here I go, and people will listen, and they'll take notes, or they'll record it, and they'll memorize it, and then I can put them down for not getting it, and then I can offer them a solution to that where here's a class that you are going to have to pay for, where you're going to be able to get it. Or here's a spiritual way for you to attain this. And then I will know that by the end of that class or the end of these different steps that also you're going to be paying for usually or devoting mm, yourself in some way or through free labor in order to receive these gifts, you're still not going to get it. But you're wanting at that point to pretend that you do because that would feel a lot more comfortable after having sacrificed so much time and money. And so either way, I, as the leader, can say whatever I want. And it's all going to work out for me in the end. It's an entirely selfish thing to do, to get into someone's head and to make them keep trying and to make them bang their head against the wall, knowing that what you're providing for them isn't anything but that they will hold themselves up to a certain standard or the group itself will hold them up to a certain standard so they'll feel pressured into agreeing and saying they get it. I would much rather that you spend your time in an organization that offers you something that really has a practical application, that really does mean something, 
and that by you studying the texts, you are farther along in your life at the end of the day. You are not just still in the same place, but having appeased a leader who loved the fact that you just kept trying and trying and trying, and then were willing to pretend that you got it. So poor Guinevere, who's clearly bright, was sitting there thinking, the writings don't make sense, but one day when I'm older, I'll understand. And then what happens when you're older and you don't understand? You can convince yourself that you do. But really what she's saying now is, no, not only do they not make sense, but I'm not going to be going around in circles anymore. I need to have a life that makes sense. And I want to be surrounded with people in my life who actually offer me something that is real and don't waste my time anymore. No one should have to wait till they're older to understand things that they're presented as a child. Yes, there are some life lessons, but those are things you come to on your own. So thank you to Guinevere. Thank you to all those who have left the Lyman family and support for all of those who are still affected by this group. Take good care. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at indoctrinationpodcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.